can help support the channel by heading to our merchandise store and picking up some of our great aircraft designs created by our graphic designer. We have everything from fighters to transport aircraft, which you can choose to have printed on t-shirts, mugs, stickers and much much more. Head to the description below and click the links and pick up your design today. Thank you and enjoy. So Tony, then you got assigned to fly the B-1B. How did this come about? Well, back in that time frame, in the mid in the mid nineties, nineteen nineties, BRAC came through base realignment and closure. And so I don't know exactly how the decision was made. Um, I think I sent you a picture to revert back when we were doing the training in the F sixteen. There was that one picture I showed you. There were probably there were probably there were seventy F sixteens, seventy on our ramp at one time. Wow. So we had three squadrons. Probably, I don't know anywhere else in the world that there were that many F sixteens located in one location. But in any event, um, with the BRAC, they had to shut down some bases. I don't know how the decision came about. My thoughts are uh, the B ones. And McConnell were on the on the active duty side of our uh, of the airport. It was pretty convenient for us to inherit those, um, and they had to close they had to close something down. So I don't know. I hate to use names, but I think it was it, the, the director of the Guard Bureau in D.C. at the time was General Don Shepard, and. Somewhere along the line, they made the decision to close our training unit down. We had a sister unit down in Tucson that flew F-16s and would transition the the international students into the F-16. There was a test uh, unit there as well. But it just so happens, you know, coincidentally, that General Shepard had been the former commander of that unit down in Tucson. And here we are with, you know, and I don't want to pound my chest, but... We had all these seasoned F-16 instructors, mostly all full-time, from all different backgrounds of, of fighters, and they decided to close ours down and move it, our training operation, and move it down to Tucson. The airspace down there was already saturated with mm -hmm. F-15s from Luke and 16s from Luke. You got DMUs in the same airspace. You got Yuma. And so, again, I don't know how it happened. It just happened. Um, and so uh, they stood up, I think, two more uh, two more units with the B-1s. The Kansas Air National Guard was the first Air National Guard to ever fly the B-1. Um, at that time, they had taken the B-1 out of the nuclear role and was were trying to make it a conventional bomber. And uh, I think... You know, one of the other rumor mills you heard was, oh, well, these guys over at the Kansas Air National Guard, they're all fighter guys. They're going to make this B-1 into something bigger and better, which was, was partly true. The experience was there. But, you know, unfortunately, Mike, as, as I said, there's 60 pilots, full-time instructors. After the first year of conversion into the B-1, mm. there were only 15 of us left of those wow. pilots. It, it, was, it was a very difficult transition because you go into a single-seat fighter, everybody were had their big egos, and you're going into a four-place bomber. And people left. They went to other units. They retired. They went to fly airlines. It just was a, a difficult 
transition. But in any case, it, it worked out. We brought in new people. We had to bring in backseaters because you had people as a four crewed airplane. So, uh, but in that regard, the unit shrunk down. But uh, th- that's pretty much how we came about them. I mean, they're, I think mostly it was because the aircraft were already located at McConnell. Um, when we flew them uh, at that time, there was probably, they say they built around 100 B1s. Um, at the time we were flying them, there was probably in the 70s, 70, mm. 75 of them still flying um, when we had them. And now they're down to 45 that are actually left flying. Actually, I take that back. They're down to 44. You may have heard yeah. about the, of course, yeah. the accident they had up at Ellsworth Friday with, with the one that they lost. So we're down to 44. But in any case, that's how we, we acquired them, and that's that's how they came about. Um yeah, I mean, it's an incredible aircraft. But what were your first thoughts on the bone? Well, <laughs> that's sigh. <laughs> well, the, the first thoughts, obviously, again, I, I keep reverting back. Unfortunately, that you know, we were all fighter guys, and it was the last thing that we wanted as as a fighter guy. You know, here we are in this bomber. To me, it was it was a neat looking airplane. Let's face it, it was a swept wing variable sweep. Um, huge huge aircraft and uh just an appearance it was really cool looking um but once you started the training and getting into it you found out really quickly what a lot of limitations were um obviously it was designed to carry nukes into the heart of the soviet union and it did that very well mike i mean the the thing had legs on it it would fly forever and uh, at high, high speeds. I mean, we're 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 talking in comparison the F the F sixteen at the time I was in it. We would plan our low levels at four hundred and eighty knots. What's that? Six eight, eight eight miles a minute. This thing did the low levels at nine miles a minute. Mm. The turn radius it take thirteen miles to do a one hundred and eighty degree turn. Ooh. I mean, you're going so fast, and that was the thing to me that was most amazing about the aircraft was. I don't remember the numbers. I mean, we're looking back 30 years ago now, but uh, it was probably, I think it was around looking up the numbers. It's like Matt gross, gross, maxed out weight, takeoff weight was 470,000 some pounds. And you had this huge hunk of metal going through the air at nine miles a minute. And then, I mean, you go faster than that. But um, so that was, that was what was most impressive to me. Um, obviously the B1A was first. And then they, uh, that was a little bit faster, a supersonic bomber. The, the, the B, B-1B, it could go a little bit faster down at low altitude, but not at high altitude. Um, and uh, I think the, 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 the speed limit was like 1.2 Mach or 1.25 Mach. I, I went supersonic in at once. Um, right. It wasn't. It wasn't the supersonic speed. It was the fact that it could go fast at low altitude for a long, long time. Again, in comparison, a fighter type like an F-16, when we do a low level, plan a low level into a target area, you know, you might hit a tanker first if you had that the asset, drop down and do a 20, 25, maybe 30-minute low level to the target, you know, download it, made all the radars. The B-1, we would take it up in some of the northern states where we had these really long, long IR low-level routes. 
an hour at nine miles a minute. I mean, it's like, this is just, this is just getting really wow. boring. But you fly that thing around. So in that regard, that was what was most impressive to me about it was the speed. And whenever we went to Nellis with it or whatever, you know, these are big, big flag exercises with aircraft from all over the world, the tornadoes and all those, those guys are flying underneath you. They would, they, they would hug the earth. But even at that, they'd always put the B1. It was such a big, big aircraft everybody could visually station keep off of it you know look oh there he is he's 10 miles over there they would station keep uh station keep off of you flying to the targets and you know they had the radars the b1 had a air to air air to ground radar but the air to air radar was not very good so the guys behind you would be telling you where the air threats were okay you need to drag out of the fight we'll take him out and you can pitch back and continue to the target and so that was kind of the tactics that always put us out front because they could keep us in sight. But we would have to slow down for them because they couldn't keep up. I mean, they could, but they were going to exhaust all their fuel in mm -hmm. burner or whatever in and out of afterburner to stay up with you. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was kind of my first impressions of it. <laughs> Yeah, and before we move on to like the nitty gritty of the B1, I, I've like I probably mentioned it on the channel a few times uh, where my favorite aircraft is a Tornado F3, and um, when they went to red flag, the B1B guys used to say, "Okay, we're down level, we need some escorts," and they they said to the F3 guys, "Can you keep up?" And they were like, "Yeah, of course we can." You know, the wings back and they were like, yeah. And I think that was the only jet that could keep up with the B-1B down level, which I thought was like fascinating because I thought the B-1B would be like, yeah, you can't keep up. But the F-3 guys actually uh, kept up with it, which I thought was amazing. Did you ever fly with the F-3 guys, uh, REF F-3 uh, guys? No, I don't recall. I just know that there was a mix of all different aircraft at the flag exercises and the mm -hmm. tornadoes were always pretty interesting to see. But... <laughs> Um, you'd see them go underneath you or you'd cross over them or whatever, but uh, that was about the, the max uh, as far as flying with the RAF guys. I, I see you asked that question in previous interviews. Do you ever fly with anybody in the Air Force? I'm going, God, who, who could I say I flew with Britain? <laughs> and you know what? I can say one person, and, and you've probably heard this person. It has nothing to do with what we're – but have you ever heard of Nigel Mansell? Oh, yeah, yeah. The race driver? So I was the, the Formula One driver. Yeah. So I took him from Wichita to uh, to Great Britain. Actually, we stopped in Iceland in the Citation. He bought a Citation jet from the factory. Oh, and wow. I got to fly with him. Remarkable, fascinating person. That's a whole nother story, but just the nicest guy you would ever meet. And um, down to earth, a lot of fun. But that, uh, <laughs> as far as the British, that's about all I can say is <laughs> Nigel Mansell. Yeah, that's a, that's a great side note there, Tony. But uh, yeah, let's talk about your flying and ground training. What was it like? Uh, you know, obviously working with a big crew. Now, uh, did you find it difficult, or how did you find that for your yourself personally? Well, like any training, everything's new, and I, and I don't care how good you are or what you've flown in the past. Everything's a new environment, and you can stump the dummy in every new environment. So, you know, you what we did it was a it was a, uh, a six month course. Wow. And it was a long course, and and part of the reason for that was, as I recall at the time, their syllabus, they only had one syllabus, and it was for B course or, or basically people right out of pilot training, 
And so we had we had to go through the same course as seasoned pilots, which was really really wasn't fair to us because mm. there was a lot of stuff they could have skipped, but that was kind of the only syllabus they had. So uh, we were in Wichita. It was the training was down in Dias Air Force Base down in Abilene, Texas. Uh, so six months, uh, basically, you went down there, and uh, the first five months were academics. You never oh. flew the airplane. Really? Never flew the airplane, the, f- the whole first five months. So you got, you got five months of academics, and, you know, it's like every – Every course in the in the military, in the Air Force, they give you the stack of books like this high, and you're never going to read through all that. I don't yeah. care if you had three years. I mean, so you did the best you could. You went to the you went to classes. You, they threw in some simulators, you know, towards the end, getting ready to fly, obviously. And as I recall, and and then the last month, the the, the sixth month, they had you scheduled to do to do twelve rides. Right. That was a lot. It seemed like, yeah, but uh, you know, you you had to do all the the, the contact rides, uh, orientation rides, and then the pattern rides, and all the different types of training were broken up in those rides. There were some guys that they only got like six or seven rides. The airplane wow. would break. They never got it done, and wow. they had to ship us back. If you went over six months in the, in our Air Force, if you went over six months, it was considered a permanent change of address. Really? So you got paid differently, and so they kept us just inside the six months, so they didn't have to give us a PCS move. Oh yeah. So we were just TDY. So in any mm-hmm. event, um, that was kind of the gist of the training. Um, a totally new environment because the guys up front there was there was the pilot in the left seat, the co-pilot in the right seat. We, because we had all been instructors, we were there and we learned both seats. You know, kind of like in the airlines, you got the, mm-hmm. the captain and you got the first officer. Well, we learned both seats. And then in the back, you had what were called the uh, the uh, OSO, the the uh, office uh, offensive systems operator. In the left back seat and in the back right, you had the defensive systems operator. So to us, it was like wow, this is just like the fighters, except it's broken down and everybody does each little thing individually. And the guys up front basically take off, put the gear up, fly it, put the gear down and land. We really didn't do anything. Mm. It didn't seem like, I mean, then the other thing obviously is the air refueling. You know, we had, we flew it to the tanker and got there, sat there, got stable and took the gas. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was just so compartmentalized, and everybody was doing their own thing. And it, it, I don't mean this in a bad way, but because at the time it was much better, it was a big advance in the over the B fifty two as a bomber. But um, for us, it was a step back in time, and mm. it was just like wow, we miss our fighters. It, we we did everything in the fighter as a single operator. In, in an hour and an hour and a half that you would do in this thing in maybe three hours or four hour mission. And it took four guys to do the same thing. So the, the, the OSO, the guy in the back pretty much ran the offensive part of the aircraft. Um, when we got in it at Dias, uh, we didn't even have maps up front. 
We wow. didn't even know where we were necessarily going. You would brief it. You would see it on paper, but they didn't even want you to have maps up in front. They didn't want the pilots to – the guy in the back steered the aircraft. It was all coupled up to the terrain-following system. He steered it to the targets. He dropped the weapons. He steered it off the targets. You could literally be – you could be at your IP, the initial point, to the target, and – you as the pilots up front, and again, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it was just the way it worked. You could see the the target was over here at, let's say, 10 o'clock, and we're going straight. Hmm. And the guy in the back, they can't see out. They've got little portal windows down yeah. by their, below their seat, and they'd have to get out of their seats to even see. I mean, I, I felt really sorry for them because they're just stuck in the seat looking at this, these screens. Yeah. But he was steering the aircraft to the target, and you could say, hey, dude, I don't know what your radar is looking at as a reflector as far as you know putting the symbology on the target, but the target's at left 10 o'clock. And you up front, you really couldn't do anything. He's back there, I envision, madly like we would in, the, in radar laydowns in the F-16 trying to find the, the offset. And he's probably back there trying, where's that? Where? Why can't I see it? Because he's telling me up front we're not pointed at the target. Mm. And that's the way it operated. And the only thing you could do up front was say, okay, if you can't find it, we'll take over manually. We'll we'll take the aircraft. We'll fly. We'll point at the target. And it was just like a T-liar drop. I mean, you got within a certain distance knowing what your speed and altitude was. And you'd go, okay, this looks about right pickle and you knew the bomb was either going to go long or short of the target because you're flying right towards it but other than that you didn't know exactly where it was going to hit it was all based on just a tlar type of drop and that's the best you could do in the back then on the on the on the right was the defensive systems operator and i and i gotta tell you that the v1 at least when we had him my impression it was pretty it was pretty good in, in in terms of negating threats um, the defensive systems operator, he had some techniques where he could do a lot of really pretty neat jamming. And even when you would intercept the B1 in a fighter, you know, you, you had to, you had to fly a really a hot intercept. You couldn't get, you couldn't lag behind or get, get behind it because it was fast. You could chase it down and you'd exhaust your fuel pretty quickly. But even when you got close with the radar on it, it would do some funny things with your radar. The TD box is locked on it. And it's like it won't it won't lock on it won't lock lock on. Mm-hmm. It really didn't matter if you're going to shoot you know aim nine heaters at it if it's got the heat source it's going to go to the, the exhaust. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he could do that. He would dump out the chaff. He would dump out the flares. Again, all that was done you know by single seat guys. But um, that's kind of the the mode of the guys that that flew the aircraft is. It was all weather, quote, all weather. Um, you see what happened, and I, you know, it's conjecture what happened up in Ellsworth, but, and we'll get into this probably later, but for example, you, you couldn't go through a cloud uh, where the ice light would come on, at least when we were flying it. Right. Um, you couldn't start the engines in visible moisture below freezing. Oh, wow. And, and you see, there there's so many of these things. I don't, I don't want to be totally negative, but you throw all these out. The Air Force wanted something between the B-52 and the, the B-2 wasn't quite finished yet. They wanted that intermediate bomber thing, but it, 
in my opinion, it was never going to be a conventional bomber, and it still isn't a conventional bomber in terms of B-52s dropping bombs. It's limited on altitude. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that in a minute, I suppose. But you asked in terms of what was it like in the training. Uh, it was long, arduous um, training. Um, finally, when you got to fly it, the first sortie, I, I'll never forget, we went out on the ramp. We got in the aircraft. You know, Everybody's in their positions. We're getting ready to crank. There was some kind of a mechanical problem, and we sat in the airplane longer than we flew it. <laughs> no way. But, but that was the way, you know, you're coming from SAC. Well, it was Air Combat Command now. But it, that was a SACism thing. You stayed with the jet. You called the maintenance guys out to come look and see what the problem is, see if they could fix it. It took forever to come in. We sat in the airplane for three hours. We didn't fly it three what hours. What do you do in that time, that three hours? You just sit there and be like, did you watch the game last night? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Now, now, contrast that with a guard. If we had problems, whether it be in a fighter or the bomber or any other airplanes, it's like, hey, it's broke. We need the maintenance guys to come out here. We'll go back into the crew ready room, and you call us when you get it fixed. But that was the different, again, different mentalities in different communities, and that's the way the the bomber world in the in the active duty operated at least at that time. And it's like this is hideous. This doesn't even make sense. We could we could be accomplishing something, and they can call us when it's ready, and we'll come back out. But they didn't do it that way. Mm. So. You know, on my check ride, I remember it took two sorties to complete the check ride because I think when we came back to do the pattern work, the, we put the gear down and we couldn't get the gear to come back up. So um, we landed and had to finish up that. But but that was kind of what the training was like. Um, yeah, a lot of systems, a lot of uh, – it was a complex, a very complex airplane, um, but – it was kind of neat, and it was it was fun to fly. I'm not going to deny that. It just is a as a platform at that time. Now we'll we'll talk about later on, but at that time it was not a very good platform as a conventional bomber, and I don't think it ever will be. Right. I mean, I'm just waiting for the comments to come in below on this interview. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So Tony, can you tell us about the cockpit and wing sweep? Was the wing sweep manual and what was it also like taking off and burning that thing? Because I've heard it, I've, I've watched it a couple of times at Riyadh, and it's literally the loudest aircraft I've ever seen or heard. Oh, yeah. Well, starting with the loud first, when they would do flybys, you know, we'd go back to the uh, to our class reunions or a football game out at the Air Force Academy. If they did a flyby with the B-1, all the all the, all the the alarms in the cars, the horns are going off because it was just so loud. Uh, many times I was, uh, when we were flying them in the guard, I was the, one of the airspace managers, additional duty. And we get calls all the time from farmers and ranchers that, man, you, you, you flew over and you ran my cattle through the fence. You know, they, they, it's so loud. The cattle just take off and wow. get scared and they would, they would blame it on us. And a lot of times now that wasn't us. What time was it? Well, that was active duty guys or something, but the cockpit and the wings, uh, the wings, as I recall, again, we're looking three decades ago, the wings, you'd sweep the wings, there was a handle on each side of the uh, cockpit up front, and you would pull the handle aft or forward to sweep the wings. The wings would sweep something like, I think they were stationary, uh, like at 15 degrees, uh, 
uh, normally for takeoff and landings and high altitude, uh, slower flight. And then uh, you would take off, what I recall, on departure, when you hit 350 knots, uh, you'd sweep the wings aft, and they would go back to about 67, 67 degrees. Uh, and that's the way you would fly your low levels and high-speed uh, type flight. Uh, when you went up to go get gas or air refuel or something, you'd sweep the wings forward. Um, had more lift, obviously. But um, so that's that's how the it was all manual. And you know you got to realize too that every time you swept the wings, your CG was changing in that mm-hmm. aircraft. And so uh, you know pumps from pumps are working and moving the fuel from aft to forward as required based on where the wing swept was. So it was pretty complex in that regard. I never remembered there ever being any problems with the CG on the thing. Um, is all automatic in that regard, but you manually uh, initiated the, uh, the the movement of the wings. Was um, it like a bit like what an, an F one eleven where it was because a tornado was down by the throttle, the F one eleven was up by the canopy. Where was the wing sweep lever on the B one B? The levers, I think I sent you maybe some pictures. You could see them in some of those pictures. It was just a long, it was just a long handle with a little ball on the top of it. And they were identical on each side, and that's what you use to sweep the wing. I don't remember there being any intermediate positions. I think they were swept all the way aft or all the way forward. Right. Uh, I don't don't recall them being anywhere else. I know that I've talked to people. You know, there's a pin that the wing is stationed to the fuselage. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, like, they say it's huge, almost two feet in diameter. It's not solid, but... um, and they have to put it in, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, they have to freeze the Freeze the it and then it expands, doesn't it? Yeah, they have to freeze it to get it seated when they first install it so then it can expand because it's the tolerances are so tight on the thing is what I understand. Um, but that was uh, that was pretty interesting. The other, the other feature was the SMUCS, the uh, Structural Mode Control System, SMUCS they called it. Right. And those were those little fins that you see up in front. Oh, like yes. Shark, yes. Shark. Yeah. And initially, I guess they didn't have those, but that aircraft longitudinally is so long when you start flying the low levels and, and you get into turbulence, you were putting a lot of stress on the uh, on the airframe. So they put the smuck system in, and those are like shark fins. And they would sit there, and they would move to dampen out the aircraft as you're as you're going over the ground so that was really kind of interesting you'd, you'd manually i, I want to say you'd manually turn those on and off because if you came up to high altitude to get to get gas or something you could hear them kind of vibrating and buzzing and it's like oh you switch those things off we don't need them now we're not going that fast but they call that the smucks yeah smucks right brilliant stuff um, i mean this yeah. is a part we're going to get into so yeah what did the b1b do well and not so well especially in your time when you were flying it well, again, I'll, I'll focus on the good. The, the, like I said, the, the thing would go a long ways, Mike. I mean, it would at nine miles a minute, that's almost incredible. You, you, you're not going supersonic down low, but you're going right up against the wall. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and the fighters, even the modern fighters, uh, the, the Block 40 and Block, the, the, the newer F-16s, could super cruise without, without having to go into to, uh, afterburner. But the yeah. problem you started getting into is, you know, Mark 82 or Mark 84, they have wires that run through the fuse. And at the wingman, we, we typically flew line abreast, a mile, mile and a half line abreast to check each other's six. And the wingman got sucked back 
he could catch up with you, but now he's really accelerating, not not mm. a lot, but he's speeding up. And what I understood is it would pull those wires out of the propeller that would arm the munition. So if oh, that wire nice. comes out, the, 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 the bomb is still attached to the wing, the fuse spins up, so now the bomb's armed. And if it sees a deacceleration, i.e., let's say a bird or something small just hit it, it's going to blow up. Yeah. So they had problems with that. Obviously, now you know the F-22 and the three, probably part of the reason the weapons are internal, you know, because mm-hmm. it, they go faster. Um, so in the uh, in the B-1, like I said, the strengths were its speed, um, and so we'll talk about. You know, when, when when I flew them for the time I did 30 years ago to date, once they got precision PGMs on, precision guided munitions, you know, JDAM, that type of thing, with GPS, INS, uh, once you got close to the target to where you could program in where you want the, the weapon to hit, it was King Kong because the thing can sweep its wings forward, it can loiter forever you know, in the sandbox or wherever we are in the Middle East, and then they can give it a target. It can sweep the wings. It can dash over to the target. It can drop a few PGMs, and, and it was Mr. King Kong. They they apparently would have one, you know, airborne 24-7 over there. Wow. They put a lot of time on it. But early on, they didn't use them in, in, in Iraq because they just weren't ready conventional bombing-wise. Um, when we got them, I think we typically had three bomb bays, the front bomb, forward bomb bay, we would always fly around with an, ex, with an extra fuel cell in there. Gave us mm-hmm. more fuel. So the center and the, the aft, and they would hold, gosh, I want to say 28 uh, 500-pound bombs in each bomb bay. Wow. Okay, so the problem, the problem with it was at nine miles a minute, they, they built these ro- rotary racks that the bombs would be in, and they'd spin them in the the weapons would come out. There's just physically no way to eject the weapons fast enough going that speed. If, if it was a building target, you're going to get a whole bunch of bombs hit short of the target because you're going so fast. A yeah. few of them will hit the target, and then you're going to string out the rest of them. And so as a conventional bomber, it just doesn't work. And, and they, you know, they drop CBU and all kinds of things. Um, now with the PGMs, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. In addition to that, um, now they have updated all four of the, the stations with, with, with new avionics, um, radios, all that stuff's all new. They've improved a lot of things. So it's a whole new suite from when, when I flew. When, when we flew them, um, you had like a, an MFD uh, that would be sitting in front of you, and a lot of the gauges were tape gauged. Tape gauges, yeah. so it was very, it was very difficult to read, at least compared to what we were used to, mm-hmm. and more like glass cockpits are today. Very difficult. That was different, um, but that's what we had back then. When you would, when you drop down from altitude, um, you went through this litany of checklist items, um, and you know you're calling out a thousand feet to level off, pilot. Co O D level off pilot Co O D. I mean, it was it was this checklist of things like, wow, really, we got to go do all. <laughs> and so, and it was a long checklist to get it down and coupled up. 
But once it's there, the ground map radar, even when I was flying, it was a very, very powerful ground map radar. And it could look out in front of you and it could see telephone poles. And if you came up to a telephone pole and it saw it, depending on what kind of ride, I think there was a soft ride, medium ride, and a hard ride, it would hug real close or a soft ride would kind of float. Mm -hmm. But if it saw a telephone pole, it'd fly right up over the telephone pole back down on the other side. So it was really pretty incredible, and those guys in the back, they could break all that stuff out. Air-to-air-wise, wasn't very good. We had a raw scope up front, uh, and to tell us where, where threats were looking at us at. But at the time, again, you know, you depended on that because we didn't have any other, anything else we could see up front. And if you saw a radar looking at you, it might present itself at the 1 o'clock position on the scope, but the way the thing was wired and the way it worked, you didn't know if it was at 1 o'clock or at 9 o'clock or 6 o'clock. <laughs> so, you know, are we supposed to be looking over here or back here? But that was yeah. that was some of the, the things about it. Um, like I said, you couldn't crank it when it was freezing. And, again, I don't know what happened up in Ellsworth, but you're flying in freezing fog. Really? Mm. Uh we took it out one time when we were at the flag exercises, another guy and I, and just kind of aircraft handling characteristics, and that's when, when I went supersonic in it. Um, I recall you had to be above a certain altitude, 2,000 feet or 6,000. I don't remember what the altitude was. It's just you had to be at a certain altitude or above to, to go supersonic, and we pushed it up to, and went supersonic for a little bit. And then you could really see the gas gauges. I mean, you could yeah. – that thing had a lot of gas, but you could almost like, wow, this thing's really burning the fuel now. Well, you're but... in blower, like when you are going supersonic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, so you're in full afterburner, right? Afterburner, yeah. And then um, – but the thing that really got my attention is we, we, we didn't have anything in the bomb bays. We just had the forward fuel tank. And, again, I don't mean this in a bad way, but – we swept the wings forward, climbed it up to see how high we could get. And once we yeah. got above 30,000 feet, it was like elephants jumping on the wings. Oh, really? Wow. That was it. And at, at that altitude, if you know anything about threats, you're in the heart of the surface air missiles. You're right in the heart of the SAMs. Yeah. So, it, you know, people believing that, oh, it's going to take over the role of the B-52, no, the B-52 carpet bombed in Vietnam in the, in the in the low 40s. So, you know, it's as a conventional bomber to do what the B-52 did, I don't think you'll ever see it used in that manner. But it, it doesn't say it's bad. It just means in the right environment, like now, it's King Kong. It's like the A-10. You know, everybody wants to get rid of that. But, man, you use it in the right environment. It's a great tank killer and that type of thing. And so but how much do you want to spend and continue to spend on it? And, you know, are there other platforms that are better? You know, I always thought the EF, I always thought the F-111 was a great multi-role fighter. It's all weather and it's fast and you could kind of like a fighter, but kind of like a bomber, but they, they trash those as well. Um, but like just on the side note here, Tony, did them, you as B-1B crews, um, did you ever swap notes with the B-52 crews or were you completely separate? pretty much completely separate wow okay okay yeah never interfaced with b-52 crews oh. really was never around them even in the flag exercises that we did i don't remember because the, the flag exercise whether it be a 
a red flag or a green flag, you had all these different aircraft and you did a huge, huge mass briefing. And then you break up into your different cells, depending on what your, your targets were or what your, your objective were or your tactics. And then you break up into your individual, you know, your individual airplane and brief. So it was brief, 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 brief. You go out and fly, you come back and you do your little mini brief and then a bigger briefing and then a whole big package debriefing. And so it was an all-day affair every day for a week, two weeks at a time. But, I mean, I can tell you that was my demise. That's when I decided I, I was not going to continue with the B-1. And I can tell you that story if you want. Yeah, go for it. Go for it, Tony. Um, you know, a lot of us, like I said, we, we, we got reduced from 60 to, to less than 15 pilots that I knew at the time. And, and of those 15, you got to realize at least five of them were the leadership role. So they weren't really, they were the higher ranking uh, guys. So there was very few of us left, but so that in itself was an unpleasant time. But I really, I really kept thinking, Oh, I can go somewhere else and fly the F 16. And, and you're always trying to figure out ways to do that. And, and I achieved that. But once the opportunity presented, I didn't, I, I didn't do that because I was going to have to move. But I decided I was done with the B-1 when we went to a flag exercise. And they were out there holding uh, on the eastern part of the airspace. And we're in a holding pattern. And there were a bunch of other uh, flights, you know, in different holding patterns, you know, whatever they might be. Uh, and... We're waiting for the war to the little mini war to start, and the warlord, he was an F-16 guy who's out there, he's checking the weather, and he calls back to everybody and says, "Okay, the ground war is called off. There it was, it was shitty weather, and but the the the, the high war was going to continue. The air to air war was going to continue. You yeah. had all these assets out there. So I asked the guy, I, I asked my co-pilot, said, hey, dude, ask the guy, asking if we can go TF train follow to the target. It'd be great training for us." Mm-hmm. And the guys in the back will get to listen to the air war. We'll know where we'll get to know where the the, the threats are off of a geo reference bullseye. They're going to call them out, and we'll know where we're at, and we'll we'll drag away if we think we're going to get shot, or we'll continue to the target. Well, keep in mind we had planned to have an EF one eleven be on our wing about two miles line abreast because he's going to go in there and sweep and 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 jam, jam all the ground threats for us so we can get in. Well, so the ground war is called off, and the warlords say, yeah, you guys can go in and train follow to the target or whatever. Well, the EF-111 has the same capability, so we both drop yeah. down and we go. Wings back. We're, <laughs> we're, we're booking along. Wings are swept. This is King Kong, and we're going in and out of weather over huge ridges you know, in that airspace. And It wasn't very long after we dropped down, and all of a sudden, the, the B-1 – if the ground map radar was having a problem, train following, you'd get an audio beeps in your headset. You go beep, 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 and and the worse it got, the more frequent the beeps would go. So eventually, it'd go beep, 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 and it'd be solid. And then the ground map had broke lock or couldn't train follow anymore, and oh, you were coupled up, and the jet would just start climbing, and it would pitch all the way over on its back if you let it. Whoa! But it would just start a gentle climb up. And at 30 degrees, the procedure was, as I recall, 30 degrees, you'd couple it off, you decouple it, take over manually, 
throw all four engines into afterburner because you want to get away from the ground in separation because you don't know what's in front of you. Yeah. And and get to a safe clearance altitude. So it did that. Took over and flew it up and okay, level off. I go, okay, oh, what's the problem? And, and keep in mind, we're still hauling ass towards the target. <laughs> we're listening to the air war up here. And I'll be darned, the last thing I want to do is just drive straight into somebody's AIM-7 or something, you know, where I don't want to get shot. So, well, he says, nothing, everything checks out normal back here. So I said, all right, let's go through the checklist. And that checklist, just to set everything up, is like a couple minutes or a minute at least. They have to go and do all their little thing, flip all it. Okay, we're ready to start letting it down. You let it down. Gets back on track. 20 seconds later, beep, 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 beep. Brakes lock, up we go again, another fly up. Oh my gosh. Level off. I go, dude, what's what's going on? And we're trying to listen. Where's the threats? Where are the air yeah. threats? And <clears throat> everything checks out normal back here. So I said, okay, we're gonna couple it back up. Go back down. Again. Beep 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 the third yeah. time. I said, dude, I don't know what's going on. The threat's getting really close. We're not gonna get Badoujwad because we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. I was going to make a hard turn to the right, a 90-degree turn to the right. And unbeknownst to me, all these other fighters, even though they hadn't been really cleared and they're not all weather at all, they're kind of going in and out of clouds. They go underneath of us. They were trying to follow us just because they wanted some training too. And they go underneath of us. And anyway, we go up north, we turn around, we come back to Las Vegas and land. And by the time we get into debriefing, I don't know. I had this. I was a lowly major at the time, or something, and and this lieutenant colonel's there, and he's going, "Yeah, I don't know where those that that B one from Kansas man. They were way off the black line. They weren't even close to it." And yeah. I got kind of kind of testy at the time. Like, that's that's BS, man. And I said, I looked at him, and I know he outranked me. I didn't care. I said, "You know what? First of all, what were you guys even doing out there?" The ground war had been called off. What were you guys doing trying to station keep off? And it got real quiet. Oh, and wow. he just completely shut up because they, they knew they were in the wrong. They shouldn't have yeah, been there. Yeah. And so that, that just stopped him. And then I get over here, my OSO and DSO, and you'll you'll recognize this, talking to the EF-111 guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the EF-111 guy goes to the OSO and he goes, hey, by the way, what channel were you running your ground map radar on? So we were using the same frequency as the EF-111 or, or vice versa. Right. And right. their side lobes were jamming our ground map radar, causing the fly-ups. And I go, you know what? This, this platform's been out for at least 15 years, and this is the first time anybody's recognized that. Yeah, I said, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm not. I, I wasn't that interested in it at the time, anyway. And I said, I'm done. And that was so, pretty much my yeah, last so, flight. So that f flight, you just knew that was I'm done with the B1. And uh, yeah, what, somebody's gonna get hurt. Yeah, and this ready to be sent to war. If this is at least it, with my past experience, we don't even know this. And again, you got to you know backtrack. The B-1 community, their tactic to go to a target, first of all, and again, now we're getting into the negatives, but it was very hard to, to make the B-1 crews understand. Um, first of all, you can't drop from, you're not going to drop from high altitude. 
I mean, you can't get that high because you're in the heart of the SAM sites. Well, we'll drop down low. We'll we'll train follow to the target. Okay, well, you know, on a desert background, you know, you guys are a big dark plane form. If a fighter up at altitude sees mm-hmm. you, you're dead. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Our wings are swept. They won't ever catch us. Well, they didn't understand. The fighter's converting all that altitude to speed. They will catch you. Catch you, yeah. And they will kill you. <laughs> oh, we'll do it at night then. We'll we'll train follow to the target at night. Okay. So then their the next tactic was they always at the time, now it's changed because people convinced them, but they would always go on an eight mile lead trail. Okay, hmm. so the lead bomber and a, and a rear bomber. So imagine this. Lee goes over the Lee goes over the target drops all of his weapons or whatever on the target. Yeah. The DSO's dumping out chaff, puts out all that chaff. What do you think the, the trail bomber is going to see? The ground map radar is going to see all that chaff. It's going to go beep, beep, beep. You're yeah. going to do a fly-up in the middle of the night, four Roman candles and afterburner, and every gomer on the ground is going to see you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they wouldn't even, at the time, they wouldn't even come in from different axes. They were always a lead trail tactic. Right. And so we finally convinced them, let's come in at different times at different axes. Let's not follow the same black line. So it just took a while to progress to that. But again, I tell you, going those speeds with a, with a dumb bomb, so to speak, you just can't get them out fast enough to really do any damage on, on more of a pinpoint target. Maybe on a runway, creating a runway because it's yeah. long. It would be a good target, but you just have to be careful of what you're using it for as a conventional bomber. So that was that was my side note as far as a story. It's, un, it's unfortunate, but again, I say now, look at it. It's King Kong in the desert. You know, it can it can loiter. It can it can dash to a target. It can pinpoint targets. It can drop on them. So again, used in the right environment, it's very capable. Absolutely. And before we wrap up the B1B bit of this interview, Tony, uh, what was it like working with a full crew? Like, did you find it easy to get on uh, on a professional level? And what was it like on a social scale as well, if you were on Red Flag, for instance? Uh, no, you you learned very quickly that you operated as a crew. Um, the more not disappointing but the more challenge was again we felt like as former fighter guys we we used to do all this but the guys in the back we didn't i didn't learn their systems in the back mm-hmm. i didn't know that seat i didn't know the defensive systems operator seat. i know what they did but as far as working with them you know you trusted each other they were just like your wingman or your flight lead you trusted them you expected them to do their their thing there was example, a little bit of disappointment. I would have thought that, you know, the guys in the back would have known that don't run the same channel that the EF-111 guy is going to be jamming all the, the threats on. Mm-hmm. But that's how you learned. That, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's the whole learning thing. But uh, professionally, you know, everybody got along pretty well in that regard. You know, hold that question maybe for the KC-135. That was a little different. But you were, you were air crew. Um, they weren't necessarily, they weren't pilots necessarily in the back, but they were the operators. Mm-hmm. Um, the pilots were up front. Um, but you learned just like a, a, a Wizzo in an F4 or a two seat, uh, fighter back, the older fighters, 
you depended on them. They they got you to and from mm-hmm. the target. So, so overall, did you enjoy your time in the B one? And how many hours did you get, Tony? I only flew it for about a year and a half, so I had a little over three hundred hours, which really wasn't very much. Um, um, did I like it? It was a fun airplane to fly. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, it was really cool to be able to go that fast with that huge hunk of metal. That's all I remember. Those four engines. I mean, <laughs> yeah. one engine was the equivalent. Basically, it was a the F-16 or the the Eagle engines were driven. Is I think that F-101 uh, engine, um, thirty thousand pounds of thrust or something, mm-hmm. and um, it would just go stink. Man, it would just go so fast, and you didn't have to really worry about the fuel like you would in a fighter. I mean, you were yeah. constantly checking your fuel in the fighter. Okay, am I Joker yet? Am I Bingo? We need to RTB, go back, you know, return to base, and and the big bomber seemed like you always had plenty of fuel. So. Yeah, that was not something. It was fun to fly. I'm glad I got to fly it. It wasn't the best mission at the time because we just didn't feel like we were very go to war capable. At least I didn't because right. we, we weren't at that time. So, but it was yeah. fun to fly. It was a fun airplane to fly. Easy, easy, easy airplane to fly. So, obviously, you went on to fly the KC-135. Can you tell us about this and your experience of uh, flying that aircraft? Uh, again, um, the active duty took back the B-1s. Um, we flew them and the Georgia Air National Guard. In fact, the guy that you interviewed, he was a – I think they flew F-15s at Georgia. You interviewed that yes, guy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting interview. I, I yeah. enjoyed listening to that. Really nice, uh, nice guy there. Uh, but uh, they flew him, and then the active duty took him back. And, uh, you know, every guard unit wants to keep their flying mission. So we had a sister unit in Topeka that flew KC-135s. Uh, and so uh, I, I, apparently the leadership agreed, hey, we want to keep our guys flying. We'll do tankers. And so we inherited the KC-135s. They also flew KC-135s tankers on the uh, at McConnell on the other side of the base. Two parallel runways. We were on the mm-hmm. west side. Active duty was on the east side. So we inherited the the KC-135. And again, a totally different community in yeah. terms of mentality from bombers and fighters and attack. But um, overall, I actually enjoyed flying that. Not not flying it, but the fact that we were able to go places and land and get out. You know, backing up in the B-1, under the SALT Treaty, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, the Soviet Union, you know, they wanted to know where our nuclear assets were at all times. So when you took off in the B-1, you were coming back to the home drum. If you mm-hmm. diverted or wanted to plan to go somewhere else, it was a big deal. You'd have to have our leadership called the they'd have to call, contact the Guard Bureau in Washington, D.C. Mm. You'd have to tell them where we're going. Even if we deployed to uh, Red Flag with it, you had to go through all those steps so you were in agreement with that that treaty. So in, in, in regards to the KC-135, you didn't have to do that. And um, you got to go a lot of places in the KC-135 because you weren't just – 
offloading fuel to the receivers, you were hauling passengers or cargoes to a lot of places while you were doing that as well. So you got to go and land at places. So I actually enjoyed that from that perspective more. It wasn't necessarily a funner airplane to fly, but you did a lot more. You felt like you accomplished something when you came back from the mission. You at least pass gas to a receiver. I know what it's like being on the other end when I need that gas. So, uh, yeah, that's how we got the KC-135, basically. Uh, they wanted to keep us flying, and that was the next best thing. And a lot of guard units converted to, to the tankers. Uh, you know, the active duty wanted to point those aircraft back. Mm -hmm. um, I think... You know, like when we had the F-16, I told you we had 70 of those things on the ramp. I think the active duty actually kind of resented that. We didn't own the aircraft. The active duty owns it. Uh, the guard units are, are controlled by the governor of each state. Uh, but, um, you know, the active duty is going, you know, why does, the, why does the guard unit get all those F-16s, you know? And that was kind of the cat's meow. We, so they took the point of those things back. And a lot of times... <laughs> A lot of times the guardsman, a traditional guardsman or reservist is a part-timer, as most people know, and they came off act, active duty generally, and so they would, uh, they were kind of held in reserve, but then, you know, I would say when Rumsfeld came along, those kind of guys, they, they realized that we need more support on the front lines, and so they started integrating the reserves and guards into the active duty which really wasn't the concept of those units, but it was more efficient for them. And, and now you see the guards and reserves working with the front lines all the time. So yeah. but in answer to your question, that's how we got to the, uh, to the KC-135. So you, you kind of mentioned with the B1Q, uh, B1B crew we uh, mentioned earlier. So what was it like working with uh, a 135 crew uh, on a, professional and social scale i would say there was more to there was more separation because you had the pilots up front and typically you'd have a boom operator to, to offload the fuel and one or two other guys in the aircraft the enlisted guys in the back and and you got kind of initially you kind of got into this officer enlisted butting not butting heads but they would be in their little group and the pilots would be in their little group and it wasn't like a fighter or even a bomber squadron where there was more unity mm -hmm. initially it got better over time but uh, at least in our guard unit it seemed like that was kind of a conflict but again you relied on them i mean they they ran the, the stuff in the back as far as uh you know get the fuel to the uh to the receivers um you know, they did all the pallets. They did They did most of the hard work, the physical work. Uh, mm -hmm. The pilots would, you know, here's where we're going, fill out the flight plan, get the weather, get the NOTAMs, go to base ops, file it, come back, okay, here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to this AR track, so-and-so. We're going to do a point parallel uh, rendezvous with the receiver or a fighter turn on, you know, and that's about as difficult as it got it was it was a lot easier but it was fun because you could go to different destinations get out go out and party whatnot <laughs> so. yeah brilliant stuff so i mean you probably refueled a lot of aircraft but can you tell us what your favorite aircraft was to refuel and did you get anything in quotes exotic that you would never normally see 
a lot of fighters, the different fighters, you know, the, the 15s, the 16s. And <clears throat> back then, the, the boom operators, the, the F-22 had come out. And I kind of distinctly remember, typically, you'd be, you might be holding in your orbit waiting for the fighters to come up and you knew what your contact time was for them to be behind you. And again, it depended if you were going to do a point parallel or a fighter turn on type of rendezvous with the receivers. But uh, if it was like a fighter turn on where, where they're going to basically intercept you and roll out behind you, it was kind of a, an evolved thing. And I can remember the boom operator would be up, up front kind of talking to you and, and you would see we had a we had a kind of like a raw scope uh we could put the we could put the iff setting in in into and, and get the iff settings for the receiver and we could plug them in and that thing unlike our little typical fighter radar warning scope this thing could see 100 150 miles away wow. so we knew where the receivers were which is a great aid what azimuth they're coming to. And so he'd be up there and we'd be chatting and he said, okay, well, it was probably about time to go back because they're going to, they're going to be back behind us pretty soon. So he had wandered <laughs> his way back there to the back and get in his little platform to, to operate the boom. But then when the F-22 came along, uh, they had the kind of a special checkout because it was a newer aircraft. And, but I can remember one time he goes, Oh my God, the, the F-22s are already behind us. And that was the thing that you noticed about, like, for example, the F-22, the speeds again, the timing was different. And it's like, oh, I thought I had time to get back there. Dude, they're already back there and <laughs> wait for me to get back there. Um, so that was that was kind of unusual. Uh, the B-2 was out of Whiteman Air Force Base, which wasn't was relatively close to where we were at McConnell in Kansas. So we refueled them a lot. Um, I don't know if exotic is the word, but they were kind of uh, interesting to refuel. Um, it's no secret that they had, you know, different types of reflectivity uh, on their on their aircraft. And boy, it was they were really concerned about it. If there was any thunderstorms within forty miles, don't don't take us there. And they would they would typically tell us, hey, turn us this way, that we need to go this way. Like, oh, dude, wow. we're 40 miles away. We're not, but you know, depending on the winds aloft and stuff, hail can go a long ways and drift down. And so they just didn't want to be anywhere near the weather. Got yeah, got yeah. Which was like, wow, okay. That's how protective they were of it, and rightly so. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, we, uh, the F-117s, we would go down to the uh, to Holloman and they would come up it seemed like in pairs and they were kind of autonomous ops they would do things not necessarily once they got as a two ship then they would split off as singletons and they were always kind of single and um, most of the times we would refuel them it seemed like it was always nighttime and um, they were kind of unusual and it took a little bit longer because they weren't as fast and where you at you know when you but uh, no, we we refueled any and everybody. Um, it was just a it, to me it was a more satisfying uh, type mission because I felt like we were really doing something at the time. And again, I don't mean that to bad mouth the, the bone because now, like I said, it's very effective in, in what it can do with PGMs. But man, when we had it, whew, 
Okay, there so. we go. So how long do you spend on the 135? And I'm guessing, obviously, from your what you just said, you really enjoyed it. See, I left Cessna, and I went to fly airlines, UPS. I came back. I came back and tried to get back into the unit again. I went actually into the reserve unit here at McConnell. We had guard, reserve, and active duty. They had tankers, and they couldn't get me a training slot. Uh, and so I went back over to the guard. That was about the time they were losing the B1, and they were they were also gaining the KC-135. And I go, well, I'm waiting for a training slot. And so they took me, took me back in, and um, from there uh, – we did our training down at Altus, um, much shorter than the than the uh, than the B1 training, and it was much closer. So on weekends we come home. Fortunately, I was paired with a gosh, what was it? Ray Conley was his name. He's flying for Fed, FedEx right now. The guy was active duty. I was paired with him. One of the sharpest uh, crew members that I've ever been around. Really sharp. And so I went through training with him. We'd drive back together every weekend to see our, see our wives and family. And um, But he was just really good, kind of pulled me through. He His objective, I want to get an EQ on my check ride. You know, he was still in active duty and wanting to do well. EQ is exceptionally qualified, you know, when they give you a check ride. And sure enough, we got EQs. And um, he went on his way, and I came back to the, to the guard and, and flew it there. Uh, I went back in... 2002, uh, got back on full time and for almost the next five years uh, until 2007 when we lost the KC-135. They took that from us. Um, So for five, almost five years, I flew it probably, I don't know how many hours, no idea because I didn't, I had my my airline job. I don't care about hours anymore. Um, Fair enough. But uh, I flew it for almost five straight years, and uh, we would fly. We'd fly at least a couple times a week, maybe three times, but nice. at least two times. And it was always fun because you were just cruising up. There were a lot of uh, air refueling tracks around here, here in the middle of the country, and um, or you might fly a little ways somewhere else to to pick up receivers, but. Gosh, if I'd have known during the fighter days how easy it was to orchestrate getting tanker support, I'd have got a lot more tanker support because more gas, more flying time. Yeah. But, uh, that. Anyway, that. that was uh, that was the gist of it. The training was uh, the training was uh, typical. I mean, you did your basic uh, uh, initial flights in it you did your pattern work you did your instrument work and then you started going like you were doing a real mission you would go go to an air refueling track and and rendezvous with the receivers and uh then you'd come home so we've got a a question from one of our patrons and a couple of personal questions to wrap up this interview tony so this one is from joe kunzler did you ever get to drop precision weapons out of the B1B? No, I did not. No, I did not. Never. We weren't that far along yet. It was just typically Mark 82s, which, uh, and I don't even know if I ever even dropped Mark 82s. You got to remember, we were we were in the early stages of uh, 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 conventional bomber conversion with the B1. So. 
they were still trying to get the racks to work right in there to, to yeah. hang the weapons on, and they would spin. And typically, for the guys in the back that actually did the, the, the weapons releases, we'd go to the range and drop the little 35-pound blue BDU yeah. on the target, and that was that's what we used for training. And then, then you might go to the Utah, uh, Utah Test Training Range out in Salt Lake and drop inert heavyweights, but... I don't remember ever really dropping anything, and that's why I say it was such a long mission. And you were trying to get training for everybody, even the DSO, the defensive systems operator. There was a uh, there was some type of a radar emitter site in La Junta, Colorado, mm-hmm. and you might plan the, the mission. Okay, well, you guys got your training. Let's fly all the way to La Junta now so he, we can overfly the site and he can get some jamming and do his jamming techniques or whatever. So, so but no, in answer to the question, never never did drop a precision munition off me. Well, thanks for answering that question for our patron there. But, uh, yeah, so to wrap up here, Tony, do you have any hobbies? Uh, yeah, I mean, I still like... I still like to fly. I've got a light airplane. I fly general aviation. I've got an experimental. I fly around a little biplane. I've got. I really like ultralights now, and I think I don't know. If you, I think you saw that that video of me on on Facebook. Uh, uh, that little. It's called a laser. It's kind of like a, a little glider. It's got two nine and a half horsepower Rotax nice. engines. <laughs> and as far as flying and a hobby, that's what I most like to fly now it's very very peaceful i like his local historical things i restored an old bank a 1905 bank in my little hometown and made a little coffee shop there i like to travel a little bit and fish and that type of stuff but yeah just living life it's, it's fun to be retired absolutely i think i know the answer to this one but i'm gonna let you answer it favorite aircraft you have flown tony ah uh, Obviously, the F-16. I mean, again, I revert back. It was a way, way, way lot more work. But your hair was on fire, your teeth are hanging, and it was just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. A lot of risk, but a lot of fun. Absolutely. When you wish you could fly either past or present. I've heard you ask that question in, your pre- in the other interviews. And, you know, I thought about it. And at first, I was going to say... Maybe the F-22, um, because state-of-the-art. The F-35, I don't really have a lot of appeal for that. I think it's it's limited, even though it's very high-tech. But the F-22, my last uh, student I had in F-16s, he was right out of pilot training. He retired as a one-star, and I've chatted with him about it, uh, Scott Croxton. And, you know, they would operate in the 50 to 60,000 block and the speeds that they could get up to that altitude with and the radar yeah, was yeah. just incredible. I mean, contacts in the F-16, you might pick up 20 to 30 miles out depending on the size. This thing, we're not talking tens, we're talking hundreds of miles and they could have their they could have their targets sorted, targeted and sorted when they're in the arming area, hundreds of miles away. So the, wow. the yeah. technology is fantastic. You can only imagine an F-35. But in answer to that question, uh, what would I like to fly past or present? Um, the F-22 and then another guy, you know, I've been over to Melden Hall. I've jump-seated jump uh, uh, Space 8 on the tanker a lot out of McConnell because they have a rotator every week that used to go into Melden Hall. So I've been over there two times aviano uh 
another time. So three times I've taken hops. But when we were in England, we went to Duxford. Nice. And so the Spitfire would be kind of cool. Just a nimble little fighter. Um, And then, you know, I just look back and it'd be kind of nice to, it's always intrigued me as the SR-71. I wouldn't want to do that mission year after, I mean, month after month because you're sitting there in long periods. But to say you flew that thing, pretty incredible. Uh, so, you know, not one distinct answer, but um, those would be kind of the airplanes. Uh, I've flown, I've ridden in the P-51, and um, it's got its pros and cons, and it's it's fun too. But the Spitfire, I think, would probably be high on my list. Over the P-51? So, right, okay. Yeah, because I, I know what the P-51 is. I've heard people that, that have actually flown it. It's, it's very, uh, it takes more stick input you know, to, to fly it than they thought it would. Whereas I envision, you know, you see the, in a museum, you see a Spitfire hanging up there. It's, it's very small. It's probably a lot, obviously a lot lighter and very maneuverable and very nimble. Um, so I, I just love to see what it's like to fly it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The P-51 is, is still fabulous as well. You know, when I took a ride in a P-51, I'll, I'll tell you that story real quickly, but, uh, I wanted to have my last flight in a in a in a fighter, and mm-hmm. their National Guard at Kansas, the first fighter they flew was a P-51, and the last one was a tanker. So I orchestrated a photo shoot. We took two tankers down. One had the camera guy in it, and I took off in the back seat of the this P-51, and we rejoined. So we had both the first and last aircraft, and we got pictures of it looking like the P-51s receiving gas off the tanker and everything. But I was kind of like amazed, not amazed, but disappointed that the P-51 up at altitude didn't seem like it could accelerate that fast or had that much power. Well, the owner probably wasn't wrapping it up like it was, but I can tell you when we came back to the pattern and did some low high-speed passes, it was almost like strafing in a in a in an F-16. You know, you typically strafe 300, 325 knots. And we were coming over the airfield. It seemed like at least the ground rush, as I recall, was we're, we're, we're booking along. Um, but that particular P-51 was called Sweet and Lovely. And <laughs> it went to Oshkosh, which is our big air show here, and took grand champion of all the warbirds one year. And then they got the grand champions together. And that particular aircraft took first place of all the grand champions and it was probably uh, Bob Bob Baker was the one that had it. He built three of them, uh, and he sold them both. And that particular aircraft took first place in its class at the Reno Air Races two or three years ago. And then more recently, it took, like, third place. But um, So it's a very capable aircraft as well, especially, obviously, in its day. But... Again, just because I've never flown or been around the Spitfire much, you hear so much about it mm-hmm. that that'd be kind of neat to to get a ride in or fly or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tony, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing a bit about your story. I'm sure our viewers are going to absolutely love it. But, uh, yeah, thanks again, mate. Well, thank you so much. I hope your your viewers enjoyed it, and I, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Um gets the word out it gets the other people to to be able to see what 
what air crews do in all different types of air, aircraft. So thank you very much for your uh, your uh, your business that you have. Cheers, Tony. All right. Take care. Cheers to you. Thank you.